I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Max has written an introduction to Time Lived Without Its Flow, which is very disconcerting for me to read because I realised that once the reader had bought the book and had read Max's bit, what I had to say could only be downhill all the way <laughs> and the most disappointing anti-climax after this lyrical and forceful and thoroughly over-generous preamble. And I would like to thank both Max and Emily Berry for kindly agreeing to be dragged out in support not only of this, but in support of a celebration of both of their works as well. And so we do want this very much to be a shared event. What we thought we'd do would be to first read, trying to stick to no more than four minutes each from our three texts, after which the three of us have, I think, worked up some questions that we're going to put to each other. And I will kick off with the first question to Max and Emily. After that, a Q&A, should people want a Q&A, <laughs> and, and then a signing, um, should people want that. <laughs> but I wanted to open my own short reading from my work, actually with some lines of Emily's, which seem to me to be brilliantly conceived and also perfect for this shared occasion. And they're lines from a poem of hers called Unexhausted Time. And Emily has written, When someone leaves you, they flow out of you like milk. And if you allow it, you can feed people. So I start on my own very brief selection from Time Lived Without Its Flow. What do the dead give us? A grip on the present instant in which we're now relentlessly inserted. Not in a contemplative sense, but vigorously, a carnal sensation. If to be dead is to exist outside of earthly time, then this tough-minded, energetic, living in the present is also the life of the dead. My new ability to live in the present joins in that timelessness of being dead, or it's the nearest I can get to it. Not that your sense of time is distorted. What's changed is more radical than that. Simply, you are no longer in time. Only from your freshly removed perspective can you fully understand how our habitual intuitions of time are not without their limits and can falter? To tell someone with a dead child, you really should move on, is doubly thoughtless because there's no medium left through which to move anywhere. We were drifting through our former time like underwater creatures furnished with gills that they didn't notice they had until they were fished up out of their element and their breathing apparatus failed. Still, I find myself wanting to claim time standstill 
as an ordinary enough phenomenon, if not inevitable, then perfectly to be expected in the wake of a sudden death, as a condition not to be quickly categorized as, quote, pathological, unquote, and then consigned to an isolating silence, but rather to be recognized as common enough and capable of being openly discussed. How then can I struggle to convey this distinctive experience of living inside a new, non-time, while in the same breath I want to save it from being treated as unapproachable and exceptional? That straightforwardly enough might be a matter of allowing the myriad specificities of different losses their differing temporal impacts. A chronic or a terminal illness may force on its sufferer a vehemently transformed kind of time that will possess its own charge, not to be flattened into a false equivalence with other kinds of changed temporalities. Your own altered temporality is not to do with any kind of taking thought. It's prior to that and supremely indifferent to lament and to cogitation alike. Instead, it feels foundational to do with the change in the entire structure of cognition, an unanticipated and irrevocable vanishing smashes through your habitual cognitive assumption that objects and people will continue to exist to reappear. The person who says, I keep expecting to hear his key in the door at any moment, isn't merely falling back on a well-worn trope. She's issuing a factual report. Once so ferociously shaken up, cognition can't readily regroup its forces to reassemble with its old anticipation intact. The entire stance inside which you'd previously lived has changed, not by any disfiguring melancholia on your part, or even by simple reflective sadness, but by an upheaval of that pre-conscious topography through which your old apprehension of the world had once quietly moved. So those who lose a child will go out with the lost one into their timelessness, into timeless time. This experience, as I reflected, must be the time of the dead, or it's as near as you can get to entering into that time or that non-time. And finally, if your own time as a child had once thrown you into language, now you discover that narrative language had sustained you across time. Its thens and nexts had once unfolded themselves placidly, but now that time has abruptly gone away from you, your language of telling has left with it, for now an unsuspected scenario has enfolded you in its blinding illumination. You are time. You are saturated with it, rather than standing apart from it as a previously completed being who was free to move in it. Then whatever happens once you're thrown entirely outside of time's motion and you find yourself abruptly divorced from this mutual implication, do you now say that you have stopped? Admittedly, something still goes on you walk about, you sleep a bit, you do your best to work, you get older. Yet in essence, you have stopped. You're held in a crystalline suspension. Your impression of your own interiority has utterly drained away. And your pure skin stretched tightly out over vacancy. You abide. Um, 
I'd just like to really thank Denise for having Max and I uh, kind of tagging along at her launch. Um, and yeah, for just always being so generous with other people's work. Um, I'm just going to read three short poems about grief, obviously. Um, let's try and keep, the, keep everyone's spirits up. Um, this one's called, Now All My Poems Are About Death, I Feel As Though I'm Really Living. Under the trees, on the wet ground, with the staggering crows. I photograph myself in the cemetery. I kneel and speak to you and I observe myself doing it. The crows observe themselves. The dead can answer us only in our own words. Can you imagine? Of course, you can't imagine. Your silence reaches out from inside me and meets itself on the outside. A sign says, some memorials may be unstable. But what is the silence like? Someone wanted to know. Tell us something in your own inimitable style. It's raining in the cemetery. I pose and yet I cannot pose. I knelt, I spoke, I cried. I wrote this down, regretted it. Um, this one is called Freud's Loss, and um, it's a collage um, made up of lines taken from Freud's letters. You climb a hill as high as the Leopoldsburg. The road is so narrow that only a light little carriage can go up it. The carriage can't hold more than two people, a mother and a child. There is a kind of holy Sunday stillness over everything. Huge mountains, some overgrown, some bare in strange formation. You must imagine it like this. A two and a half hour journey through the most desolate lagoons, a magnificent river, vaults, waterfalls, stalactites. Sorry that I have to write about such sad things. To mourn is of course permissible. On our way back, it began to rain, but gently. The rest, you will know what I mean, is silence. Um, this one's called Aura. Listen to me, little water. I called you up, believing something would arise in me, believing I could make you reappear. On my way to the cemetery, every face was luminous, as if they knew something about the dark. I think you were in us all, reminding me not to despair, or if despairing, know that we did not lose each other either side of the calamity. We fused. You went inside and I could not see you, but afterwards, Afterwards, I could see underwater, I could see in the dark, I could see with my eyes closed, I could see past the shimmer that separates the living and the dead. I knew there was nothing, no separation, it was just aura, the most remarkable sadness, and if only I would keep looking, I would see you. Uh, it's a great honour to be here to celebrate this extraordinary book. And I, I feel like somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something good to read with you two tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Dad, they played at birds, they played at lions, they went through phases. Dinosaurs, trucks, thundercats, kung fu, lying, sport. There was very little division between their imaginary and real worlds, and people talked of coping mechanisms and normal childhood and time. Many people said, you need time, when what we needed was washing powder, knit shampoo, football stickers, batteries, bows, arrows, bows, arrows. There was very little division between my imaginary and real worlds, and people talked of sensible workloads and recovery periods and healthy obsessions. Many people said, you need time, when what I needed was Shakespeare, Ibn Arabi, Shostakovich, Howlin' Wolf. 
I remember they left their tea unfinished and I picked at half-eaten fish fingers, cold peas and coagulated ketchup. I remember I said, I'm throwing every single toy in the bin. And they giggled. I remember being scared that something must surely go wrong if we were this happy, her and me, in the early days when our love was settling into the shape of our lives, like cake mixture reaching the corners of the tin as it swells and bakes. I remember my first date, aged 15, with a girl called Hilary Gidding. A coin fell down the back of the cinema seats and we both slipped our hands into the tight, fuzzy gap of the chairs. Past popcorn kernels and sticky ticket stubs and our hands met, stroking the carpet, feeling for the coin. And it was electric. The wrist being clamped by upholstery. The darkness. The accident. The lovely dirt of public spaces. Crow. Permission to leave. I'm done. Shall I final walk the loop? The boy's dad boundary, hop, look, hop, stop, shall I final follow hunches, mourn hunt with packed lunches. I dreamt her arm was blue when I found her, red where I touched, reacted, peck a little anything, non-such mat podginess gave way to bone, accident in the home. She banged her head, dreamed a bit, was sick, slept, got up and fell, lay down and died. A trickle of blood from an ear. Hot look, sniff, taste, better not. Total waste. Lifeless cheek, lifeless shin, foot, toe, wedding ring. The medics arrive. The kids at school are learning. Learning. As you were, English widower, foliate head. The undercliff of getting on. Groans, humps, huffs and puffs. Wages, exams. Ball drops, lies and ecstatic passages. All dread dead as the wildflower meadow. Starts again in proper time. Some dads do this, some dads do that. Some natural evil, some fairly kind. Pollarded, bollarded. Was it ever thus? Elastic snaps, a sniff and a sneeze, and we are gone. Coppiced to grow well. Connoisseurs they were of how to miss a mother. My absolute pleasure. Just be good and listen to birds. Long live imagined animals, the need, the capacity. Just be kind and look out for your brother. So now we're going to observe this thoroughly tricky convention of conducting a three-way conversation in front of you who all have your own thoughts and things that you would want to be want to be saying. But we won't do that for too long. Um, will we, Max? And <laughs> I want to do it forever. <laughs> no, you won't. But no, it's your event. You do what you <laughs> I'll leave and you can stay here, speaking very beautifully to everybody. So my question about this thoroughly difficult and embarrassing and hard to calculate kind of writing um, to Max and Emily is, it's a broad and simple question. How did the business of deciding to publish and have the work distributed how did that long and complex action act so as to in any way settle their feeling about their respective losses? Or conversely, did the work of publishing and broadcasting it have perhaps a very unsettling effect and take them to um, areas of reflection that they hadn't anticipated? Well, I think it did both in my case. I think initially in the process of writing, I wasn't really thinking about what, the, what it would be like to publish the work. I was just thinking I was writing these poems and processing something. Um, and then when there was an actual book, I actually wasn't that happy about 
it going out into the world and having to sort of cope with that. And I and it, I did find it quite unsettling initially. Um, and it's only I think since time has passed. So the book came out two and a half years ago now, and it's actually like a, a through that time I've begun to. F- have a different relationship with the book and with the subject matter. So I think for me it was about not that it kind of tidies something up and puts it away, but mm. it, it it brings you into a slightly different relationship with it. I think there must be something also quite different. I'd be interested to know what Max <coughs> thinks about if you're writing. So I was writing about losing my mother when I was a child. So you're you're sort of reflecting on something very long ago. Um, that I didn't actually have that many memories of, um, which I think must be kind of quite different from your project where you were obviously writing about a more recent loss. I don't know how that kind of differs in some way, but I don't know if you have any thoughts, Max, about... Well, the loss is actually exactly the same distance for me, uh, and I know we were sort of <laughs> agreed in, in advance of this event that we all are sort of of a mind of the kind of tyranny of autobiographical writing and uh, and I think that is usually particularly the case with women and, and, and certainly the critical reception of women writing autobiography um, and we may get on to that later and it's I want to tease out your use of the word embarrassment and, and both of you have spoken very eloquently in the past about shame and the lyric and I think we could try and get there if we can but I would say that um, I haven't ever felt settled um, I, I it was my it was my becoming a writer. It was very unexpected. I didn't expect it to be published, I, I, uh, let alone the kind of stranger things further down the line that make you even less settled, like it being translated. Mm. Um, so I've got, I, I feel like I'm on firm ground and then I'm suddenly on very marshy ground and might drown um, yeah. with the strangeness yeah. of it. Yeah. The, 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 for example, I thought I understood, for me it was about finding form as well, so it was my kind of meeting of the right, my, my emergences into the public eye happened to be this most private thing, but I felt that I had translated it enough from my own experiences by inviting in an imaginary crow and things like that. You'd think that was a, enough distance for it not to hurt, mm. but of course it hurts a great deal, particularly with, with this embarrassment and unease that you're getting at, um, particularly because certain dissatisfactions with with fiction, so the form is a kind of attempt to answer those dissatisfactions with, for example, the novel or with social realism or, or whatever it is, and then you suddenly find, I find quite a long way down the line, I mean, for example, seeing it, it on the stage, I was flooded mm. with shame and guilt <laughs> that I had, that I had yeah. translated these mm. very personal things and not been able to check that with the person, you know, so it's sort of, yeah. it, 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 what it does is kind of re- animate or, or, or make psychologically active a kind of ghost a sort, a sort of haunting that one usually in ordinary life doesn't have to confront or doesn't want to yeah i'm not sure whether that answers the question but but um neither settled nor unsettled i would say mm-hmm. as 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 the form itself should be so perhaps that's my fault well maybe it's worth thinking about form because i wanted to ask you denise everyone knows that denise has in addition to this book um a long elegy called a part song which is touches on the same themes and it's sort of interesting that all the books we're talking about tonight are sort of di- like we've got an essay, a book of poetry, a kind of a novel that has poetry interwoven into it. It's actually, it's always a nightmare to be asked about form. So, and I'm now asking about mm. it, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you what I think both Time Lived and the Apart Song were initially published in the same year. And I wondered mm. whether they were being written simultaneously, or if one was written first, or how you move between the two forms or if one form seemed more exposing or more more easy or I don't know. Any. I, we share the same question. Could, mm. could the poem do something that the essay couldn't or vice versa? Well, let me start answering that the other way around. Um, I had a mission, so to speak, because um, the first edition of Time Lived Without Its Flow was published in 2012, that's seven years ago. And although seven years seems you know, to be to be quite a, a short patch of time, it was the case that as recently as seven years ago, there was very little written on the subject, uh, the subject of grief. There was, so to speak, no death lit. Mm-hmm. And and now 
we've got a rising tide of, of death lead. But, and and my, my particular brief was to just put a, put a kind of gentle or not so gentle or O-A-R, kind of or into that the, the, the then monolithic authoritative flood of mourning literature, which on the one hand usually ended with an exhortation to move on, which I've run a long polemic against, both in poetry and in prose, because it seems to me to be radically misconceived and cruel, um, but also because even seven years ago, the notion of the correct stages of grief, the, you know, the, the, the denial, the, the, the anger, the bargaining, the acceptance, whatever they, they were, that tabulation still carried an awful lot of weight to a degree that even seven years later has so radically changed. And one reason why time lived is in prose was that I was struck by the fact that there was no descriptive literature about the feeling of time being completely suspended, that time had got to be a wall, it had just gone, and yet I found I could inhabit it quite practically and lucidly and cheerfully. And so because it is the case that thousands and thousands and thousands of people every year have children whose deaths precede their own, I didn't feel that I was in anything other than a very commonplace biographical accident. And I was lucky in that my son died rapidly from an unforeseen natural death. He was not the son of a family on a leaking boat across the channel. He was not bombed. I mean, a million, a million deaths in far crueler circumstances led me to reflect on the fact that working on the principle that even our most esoteric or our most apparently esoteric feelings will be common to many other people simply by virtue of the fact that we are human and nothing human is strange to us. That there must be thousands of other people who'd also had the identical experience of suspended time. So why was there nothing written about that? And there wasn't, and I looked very hard. And then I came to um, hazard the guess that the reason for the absence of a description of that kind of atemporality was to do with the fact that the sentence, the descriptive language, always leans into its own future. That a noun and a verb want to go somewhere, they want to reach their natural end, but in a condition of suspended time, your will to describe, if you have the will to describe, which you probably don't have for very long, because you soon realize that you cannot do it. You cannot do it, not because the thing is indescribable. And I very much dislike theories of language which say it's an impoverished thing and it, it can't ever describe. You know, it's all we've bloody got, so we do our best <laughs> with it. Um, but the language in which to narrate is a language which needs to be at ease with nouns and verbs that do fall and direct themselves towards the resolution of a future. And that narrative linguistic capacity is a capacity that I found was a wall for me. 
And so the answer to your question about how I wrote these and why in which mode was that um, I didn't want these questions about time to restrict their possible audience to readers of poetry, which is a limited audience. It's very much written in the hope that it might resonate with anybody who had had a similar experience. So it was an act of possibly hubristic, possibly blind solidarity with anybody in that position. That's why I wanted to um, have that clarity, which of course I could only get in retrospect once the stopping of time had eased off after a couple, two and a half years or so. My sense of sequence started to return. Um, so that came out in prose. A part song is a part song is everything else. There's one stanza in it which tries to describe arrested time. There's a bit about a rearing wave which is arrested there, which is in effect frozen. I think it's always just interesting what forms people reach for, and obviously some people just ha tend to f have one form or another. Like obviously, you're a uh, a writer of prose anyway, so mm. that you had that available to you. I was kind of curious, Max, how with your book you kind of settled on the form you did or if it just spontaneously came out that way. It came about through a uh, sense that it wouldn't necessarily, that through a kind of collage mentality that, that if I were to do, uh, if I were to have a, a kind of fable-like thing then, then go to domesticity, which was one of my main concerns I think we all sort of share that actually um, trying to sort of restate the domestic without conventional trappings of trauma then uh, then I would need then something relatively sentimental and um, so it was the juxtapositional energy I was interested in so it sort yeah. of wrote it mm -hmm. sort of wrote itself as I said it, there, was, there was this one removed from the autobiographical and I, and I wanted to ask you about that what happens when you're writing an elegy or, or you're writing in response to the elegiac mode, but you don't wish to explicitly have the biographical subject present. Mm -hmm. what, how, do, what is confessional writing? To, is this, there such a thing as confessional writing? <laughs> this, this is a question that Emily and I have discussed, and I think about it an awful lot, confessional writing. And of course, the way that that overlaps with the troubled category of what is a feminist writing, what writing is, supposedly more natural to the to the woman author and 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 so on and and so forth you see the one difficulty for me is that i i can't even like the word grief the reason i can't like the word grief is that as a noun it seems to understand too much in advance about what it is describing just that the resonances that you know, perhaps this is just peculiar to me, but for me, the resonances of the very word grief, they're fatally gentle and twilight and sepia-coloured and they're mournful. Whereas one reason that I love both Max and Emily's different writing so much is that they neither of them address that more conventionally as it were funeral urn version <laughs> of grief there is savagery mm. there is bloodiness there is rage there is frustration there is disorientation in both of your writings and for me those are close to the heart of the beast in a way that if we think of an orthodox grief literature, if there is such a thing, that would lead down a different and you know, more serene and more modulated and more measured and more soothing. Kind of path. Is, is it the same? Is it the same? Like you were saying about the concept of moving on is a sham because it's, it, it, and it's in fact a kind of tyranny, really, because it suggests that we all that, that any failure to partake in the in the happiness industry is is to be triumphed over, uh, i.e., a loss the loss of intellect. But that is 
usually a critique aimed at women more than men, isn't it? Because it's it's one of the ways which anti-intellectualism goes hand in hand with misogyny. It's that to perform grief in certain ways is expected of you, and therefore the elegy is expected of you, and concept of moving on is supposed to be this sort of uh, the, the vocabulary of the sepia that you're describing. I don't. I I don't even know. I'm I'm. I'm thinking about Anne Carson's work mm. as an elegist. You know, a very distinguished writer. Again, somebody who pays no tribute to the tasteful, misty version of grief at all. Can you think of other elegies apart from Anne's work and your own work? And, oh, I know. Rebecca Goss's yeah. work about the, the, the death of her. And there's Marie Howe, What the Living Do. Yeah. Um, it's funny because um, historically, elegy was actually a, a very male form. The, and the, and the, the, the moving on thing is very linked to that. So the kind of idea about elegy came from this idea of that to write an elegy, you would overcome your loss and replace it with, with something new. Um, which came from Freud's Morning and Melancholia, um, the idea that the libido in this sort of psychoanalytical term is, is renewed when the desire is replaced with something else. And that's a quite a sort of, in a way, sort of masculine idea. And there's, Denise's work has been sort of looked at from this sort of idea of the maternal elegy and that you write in, in Time Lived about the, the grief it becomes kind of carried almost like a, a second pregnancy. And I thought that was a really beautiful image. Although there's the question of what happens if, it, if, if it's like a, a literally a second pregnancy, what happens when that pregnancy comes mm. to term, as it were. I actually wanted to return to your original question to Max and I about the process of writing and publishing and whether you had felt that it, what that experience was like for you, and if, in the absence of, of seeking to move on, what's, what, what kind of happens then? <laughs> and then again, when it's republished, I mean, I, well, well yes. it's still happening now, tonight. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, let me just add that Freud redeemed himself after his 1918 morning in melancholia. Later on, after the death of his daughter Sophie, Freud writes a letter to a friend of his in which he says that after a death there remains a gap and that gap is not fillable and the fact that it is not fillable is as it should be. So Freud gives up all notions of the serene filling in and the serene smoothing over. I'm not answering your question. It doesn't really <laughs> matter. <Emily>. Just <laughs> but that, 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 that unfixedness oh. is precisely what your two voice, your I, me one and me two do, I think. Mm -hmm. It prevents the landing on that or the sort of, um, or, or the landing in the eye of, of mm. supposedly of the poem or, or whatever and similarly of the, of the autobiography I did it with the boys because I didn't want any fixedness on that male on that on that grieving yeah. child and I didn't want any of the quite barbaric as you're describing cliches of of, um, of forbearance or, or trauma to be ladled onto these children because that's mm. not how it was it was much more a wobbling lost yeah. yeah, yeah, which at yeah. times and I think we we failed to discuss this enough was at times, um, as I mentioned in my introduction to peace, was ecstatic, mm -hmm. joyful, di mm -hmm. dizzying, giddy, mm -hmm. and, and, and indeed um, the secrets of most of life's mysteries. You know, grief is this extraordinary um, barbed gift that one yeah. carries. And, and I think of that as the thing that possibly unites these books is that one mm -hmm. approaches the form itself with that sort of wrecking ball um, slippery, yeah. unfixed mentality to, to all things, to the idea of authorial or the, the, the narrative voice or, or, or narrative arc or character development or the shape of the poem or, mm -hmm. or, or anything, even the idea of a footnote mm -hmm. or the idea of a diary. I love the way you take the, the idea of a diary, suggest it, and then reveal its ab absolute uselessness to you mm -hmm. as, a, as a tool for ordering thoughts of loss and pain. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it seems to be a, a collaborative enterprise between essay and reader or poem and reader in a way that's very uh, startling. I, I think I've read Denise's essay 20 times and it's really un, unusual how different it is between readings. I'm sure many of you have felt this. Uh, it's a completely different essay every time you enter into it, which must mean that something between what you've written about and the form you've chosen has been highly successful in addressing its subject. Wouldn't be so good if it was about football, Denise, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but w w your question still goes unanswered um, about how you feel now and how you first felt when it came out in the capsule edition. Mm. I was very grateful when it first came out, and, or rather it was no accident that when it first came out, it came out as under the radar as it could possibly be. <laughs> and then what, over the seven years since it came out, what, what started to happen was that I'd get more and more messages from people who knew somebody who'd been trying to get a copy on reprint from, you know, from Amazon and they'd had difficulty and I would send them a PDF of it, and the PDF would go around for a bit, and then, and then the link would. Be, or, 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 so I got the impression that you know, thank God, the the sole reason that I'd risked my neck to write, and then in a very quiet way, on a very small scale way, circulate this piece had fulfilled the only hope that I had for it, which was that that it, it, it might ring true for somebody else in the same boat. The boat that I'd been whizzing around the eddies on and looking desperately for some literature which spoke to my own feeling of arrested time, simply as a subspecies of, I think, what I really wanted to say, which is that there are wild and violent feelings, as well as calm feelings, which must be so hugely common, but go unnamed because they don't fit into the, the grief vocabulary. They're not pleasant. They're not sanitized. They're very isolating feelings, I would say. It's not necessarily the case that a sudden death will draw together family members, if you do have family members at all, in, in, a, in a restorative huddle. Family members can be profoundly and sharply isolated in their experiences from each other. And that makes it even more important, I think, to have a means, if you can, of making common cause with other people. And so it was in that hope that I was actually, you know, against my, my normal tedious psychology, that I'm actually very grateful to Picador for having picked up this quiet, invisible publication and to Peter Strauss at Rogers, Coleridge and White for supporting it because its wider distribution may let it do a bit of what it was designed to do in the first place. So do, does anyone have a, 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 a question or a, or a comment to put to Max or Emily? <laughs> or, God forbid, Denise. I've talked enough. I've, I've held forth. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you thanks so much for that um i just wondered i love the term deathlet and i wondered um why you thought there's been such a growth in that over the last few years why, why the growth in deathlet it's a good question and i've wondered about it and i, I suppose the the answer is that it's, it's part of a, of a huge explosion in sensibility lit of all kinds, even quite esoteric kinds of sensibilities. And, uh, you know, to, to, to speak a bit cheaply about it, there's, there's a fabulous range from, from clit lit to pain lit and every, every possible lit in the middle. And, you know, I, I actually... Poor old dick lit in the middle. Sadly, bombarded on either side by Clit and Deathlit. Yeah. I know, I know, kind of oppressed, oppressed. Poor into, little fella, yeah. oppressed into invisibility. Yeah. Um, it's what you set out to do all those years ago. It is. It is. I wanted everybody to have a democratic opportunity yeah. to complain and to have their suffering recognised. Max, that's 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 the thing. No, I mean seriously. I am actually. I love self-help lit. If only self-help lit had been available to me in the 1960s and 1970s, I'd have made a damn sight less catastrophic mistakes in what we then didn't know to call life choices. <laughs> Can I ask... Oh, no, 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 sorry. You paid money to ask questions. <laughs> sorry, it may be a naive question, but um, for all of you, was it, in some sense, cathartic? Writing what you and and what and if it was, what does that mean? And and, and what do we understand by catharsis? In the in the con- I, I understand. I I hear what you say about the word grief and the word elegy. So I'm not looking for that, but I'm trying to understand what it could be. I don't, I've never really no. understood what catharsis is. I don't know if I've ever experienced. It. No, no, I agree. I agree. Um, so you go into the it maybe thinking, hoping it might be, but it, it wasn't in my case. I don't think unless unless catharsis is really a very slow, long term project, which is ongoing for the rest of your life. <laughs> yes, and if you think of catharsis in a Greek sense as a kind of mm. purging, or to put it less pleasantly, a kind of evacuation, um, then the trouble about this kind of this kind of writing is that you end up with what you don't want, which is a neat product, because you yourself are not living with a neat product. You're not living with a neatly parceled up and a been there, done that badge to the thing at all, and you would not want that. So for me, the notion of catharsis carries with it too strong a notion of completion, tidiness and finishedness. I agree. I think, uh, I think it's a bit like heroism, if you, uh, either the classical definition of it, or the etymological truth of it, or the popular self-help diluted idea of it. I've, I've read about them both and I don't want that. Oh. That isn't what I'm what I'm after, yeah, in, sure. experientially or, or in literature. No, I, and I and I worry about I worry about it. Um, yeah. 
whether it be whether it would be reassuring for reader to imagine that the writer has enjoyed a kind of catharsis in the writing and that you as a reader are holding a book which enacts catharsis for the writer and therefore is a literature of consolation and relief might be the other side of your question about catharsis. Why what seems to be a big deal? Oh. Okay, well, I think for the, the range of speakers you have tonight, it's actually a very small deal. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you were touching on the act of writing and publishing um, for oneself and for a reader. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking of, um, and we touched upon it with the embarrassing, the shame and the guilt, um, what it is for the lost or the departed and I was thinking about publishing and um, burial and kind of how those link or what, what might be being done through that kind of publishing. Because um, at first it seems quite opposite. Um, but um, I don't um, know, I just thought that was, I'd love to hear what you thought about that. Uh -huh. you've, you've thought about that a lot, Emily. Yeah, well, there was a, a question I was actually, I had prepared to ask, but I didn't, that touches on that a bit. Denise has a, a passage in her book that says, perhaps only through forgetting the dead could it become possible to allow them to become dead. And I was quite interested in that idea because the word allow seemed to me to imply that there was some sort of, by writing about the dead, we're kind of preventing them from going on their way or, or something. And I wondered if there was some way in which writing, it, it kind of... A, it's not that you're forgetting them in writing, but you, you enshrine them in language. And that then sort of allows you a bit of, if there's a risk of ever forgetting them through human flaw or whatever, maybe that there's a kind of safety net in the fact that you put them in a book. I, I don't know, that's just, that, that's not like I'm saying that's what I feel. It was just something I was wondering about. And I don't know what Denise and Max feel about. That. That's, I mean, I'm interested in relics in the book as a relic, really. I mean, I, I liked that you said burial, and I, and I misheard you and thought you said urn burial. And, and what I liked about that was that in my mind, I thought of how um, Thomas Brown was wrong about what the burials, what the things he found were. So the kind of self-fooling that occurs when one thinks that the book, be it printed or, or abandoned in a drawer, might be a receptacle for certain type of feelings and keep them fresh or or metamorphose them into something else and how that would be a fool's errand, but also quite a beautiful one and might involve a kind of faith in, 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 the, in the enterprise of writing and the sharing of ideas in relation to the kind of fraudulence of any effort, really, to try and get consciousness down on the page. And what I like about Denise's in that is that this is, to me, uh, um, with Emily's as well, like, is, an, is a project, therefore, of intimacy um, but, and also sort of... I like that you are cross in your book. Um, I, I, I like that you have jokes in your book. I, 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 I think that the book, as, as, as left in the soil for future readers, benefits from, from ambivalence and all those fronts, as does the relic, you know, um, and that kitsch should be a part of it. And I was aware of that with my book. I'm not sure that particularly is helpful. In it's always good to mention kitsch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here trying to remember Ben Johnson's elegy. His son died when he was seven, and I think what Ben Johnson says in his poem for his dead son is, here lies, what's the effect of, here lies my best work of poetry, which is such an elegant and brilliantly concise bringing together of the loss of the child and the literary memorial. The literary memorial becomes the buried, the buried son, but it's the very best that he, Johnson, could manage in his life. The generation of the dead boy is the best. 
in your book, though, I also slightly imagine the dead boy answering back and saying, I oh, won't yes. be used in such a way. Oh, oh no, the, the, the dead boy would think it was so comical. <laughs> just, the dead boy would just laugh like yeah. a drain, really. But is, does it unnerve you now when you read back through your selected poems? I don't know if you have, or did you just mm. hand them over? <laughs> but with some of those early poems that address this. I, it said in an email to you that I first met your work when I was reading about Mary Kelly in the postpartum document and, the, and these relics, as, almost as you're describing, that are, that are nappies and or plasters and or the charts of how much your child eats and stuff and the kind of architecture of, of, of um, the physicality of it and, and how you are already, even in your early poems, very self-conscious about the ingratitude and things like that and the kind of the, the performance of it. Um, and the kind of um, emptiness of certain vocabularies of care and dependency and stuff. And then and that, that provides an extraordinary and very moving consistency with the part song and the poems you wrote later in life. Do you, do you feel that the early poems haunt the late ones, or is that just anyone's work? Mm, no, I, th I think it's just the ordinary course of a life. In, a very well-examined one, though, well, to be fair. <laughs> no, no, but a very ordinary one as well. I mean, the... The annoying thing is that you put so much bloody effort into the writing. And <laughs> then the, the raising of kids. No, no, but it's, it's the analogy. I'm bringing out your yeah. analogy. Yeah. You put so much effort into the writing. And then they are outrageous enough to stay bloody dead after all that work. Yeah. You know, what do they think they're playing at? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to confess to you both on email, but I'll confess it in front of all these bastards as well. <laughs> I recently realised I have fantasies of a return. They are not... Um, they are real. Mm -hmm. I still believe that I may get tapped on the shoulder mm -hmm. and it will be this terrific hoax or this unbelievably complex spying game or whatever it is he's been up to. And with it yep. will come this, this apology, but also this, this triumphant thanking of me for my patience, yeah. believing that he would, of course, one day come back to me. And I, when I examine that, that is firm. Mm. That is not a notional thing that I mm. cling to. That is an actual hope. And that notion is very resonant throughout Crow as well. well throughout grief is the thing with feathers. I mean, with the figure of Crow. <laughs> well, he, that, he, he's a Freudian device in as much as he is rewriting Morning and Melancholia after he's lost a child to say that that was empty, that was hollow, yeah. that was, yeah, yeah. etc. Yeah, exactly. Because um, you've got that great section where the two boy, the crow comes to the two boys and asks them to um, make models of a mother and the, the person who makes the best model that will win the prize of the mother coming back to life. And I mm. thought that was just really poignant um, because and, and, you've, and you've got that line in a part song something like it's all a resurrection it's all a resurrection it's song, all a resurrection song. And if, yeah. it, if it could only be get got, got right the dead would rush back keen to yes, press his keen chinos. to press their chinos yes exactly um, <laughs> but I I mean it's sort of like that double thing where of course of course you know that they're not going to come back but on the other hand there's this fantasy or something that by creating something so good maybe they surely they're going to come back to see yeah. this so <laughs> well it's odd in a secular age supposedly intelligent people <laughs> uh to, to 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 find new ways to to cling to such a hope mm. um uh, even as we can be relatively analytical about how what a what a brilliant method of controlling people's superstitions and pain that was for many many hundreds of years and here we are using poetry to do just the same thing. There's a really nice quote by Susan Howe in her, she's got this essay poem called The Disappearance Approach about the death of her husband. And I think it, um, now can I remember it? She says something like, um, maybe there is some uh, unknown of return to those we have loved and lost. I need to believe, hold on to that hope even if I don't believe in it, which I feels like that, it, I think having read a lot of books about grief, that seems to be quite a common yeah. thing that people do yeah. hold these two completely contradictory mm. feelings. Yes. Um, and and that, that's, that's a communal hope, which, I, mm. which is what I love about your mm. comments about the wildness, mm. even your most extreme thoughts, mm. even as you have them or, or, or indeed repress them, 
you do so in the knowledge that they are shared. <sighs> I, I, I love that anyone would write into that knowledge. I was just thinking about the idea of time suspended and what happens when time starts continuing again and takes mm. on a certain familiar rhythm but then some, that suddenly feels very unfamiliar and that process of coming out of time suspended and I'm wondering whether writing poetry, writing prose is a way of returning to a time suspended or a continuing with time moving. The sad and the difficult aspect of feeling that your very sharp and crystalline stasis is starting to ebb away from you is that you realize you are no longer in the immediate time of the dead, so to speak. Because the, the hope or the illusion or the wish of that absence of chronological time, you know, the illusion or the faith of that time, is that that way your time is the dead, that you are, as, in a sense, as dead as the dead, but also as, as vividly alive as the dead are for you while you're, you're in that time. And so the return of the capacity to narrate and to write books and to put things together and is, is, it's, I can't tell you how disheartening it is. Um, and I think that's part of what I wanted to emphasize, that one of the gifts, if you like, that the dead give you is the realization that chronological time, the experience of the flow of time, need not be constant. It's not the only possible or even the only natural experience of temporality. Temporality can also go AWOL, but you can live inside its absence and live, live, quite, live quite brightly and sharply, I would say. I wondered what your relationship was with like the theories of mourning because you've mentioned Freud quite a bit and Emily Berry I know you've he kind of appears as a character almost in some of your poems um well uh, so mine and Denise's relationship actually arose because um Denise was my PhD supervisor I was very lucky to um luck out in that way um and I my book Stranger Baby was written as part of a creative and critical PhD and the critical part was um, a study of contemporary elegy and the question of what elegy is and if elegy is an appropriate term for the type of writing that I was doing and was most interested in. Um, so I read quite a bit about elegy and mourning and that's my, I don't know what my relationship to it is, I, I guess just that I had, I've read a bit of it and have some thoughts about it, <laughs> some of which have emerged this evening. Um, so, yeah. If I can just add a, add a remark. Um, in the years since I wrote this little book, I mentioned that um, the grief literature has changed. And one of the ways that it's changed for the better, in particular with reference to um, parents faced with the death of a child, is that the literature has expanded to include the notion of, of what in the, in the psychiatric grief trade is known as continuing bonds, i.e. your only route through to the mental hygiene, so to speak, of having completed a, a successful mourning of a dead child. You don't have to follow the moving on seven stages of grief model, you are now officially, as it were, sanctioned by this new and I think much more realistic and heartening description of continuing bonds. That is, you are allowed to envisage 
or to live in the hope of, or to live in the experience of some kind of continuing attachment to the dead child, which is not the illusion that it is really alive, but which is um, the capacity to honour the fact that attachment does not neatly expire at the death of the love object. Attachment persists and it should be allowed to persist without reproach. I think that's one of the ways that as we get more and more sophisticated as a society and realise some of the ills of, uh, 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 of capitalism and thought within it and industrialised society, we get closer and closer to ancient societies and the wisdom that was already there, particularly as regards to spirit life and stuff. Mm -hmm. We're only going back to when we knew about these things and when we wailed and shrieked and didn't have self-help books. <laughs> and, and believed that, you know, particularly actually with, I, I read a lot last year about miscarriage mm -hmm. and increasingly the psychological wisdom on miscarriage is the, the continuing relationship with the child, which is as it was in, in mm -hmm. early societies and still is in, in the Amazon rainforest where people know how to live. <laughs> outside of what they call merchandise society, where our, where our principal attachment is with objects to be bought and sold. Anyway, sorry, that was a rant. Nevertheless, in the rainforests of North London, we, we totter on as well as we can. <laughs> and we have to buy some stuff. <laughs> no, thank you all very, very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.